Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, pens the following words. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh in the hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You may be seated. There's three things that I want to draw your attention to this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, is this. It's what you are on the inside that matters most. That's the principle that I want us to glean from verse 11 this morning. It's what you are on the inside. It's the inner man that matters most. And I think we'll be able to glean that as we look at what Paul has written here in verse 11. Look back there in your Bibles for a moment. Paul says, therefore. What's the question we should always ask when we see therefore in our Bibles? That's right. What is therefore, therefore? Well, therefore should tell us that we need to look back to the preceding 10 verses. Paul says, therefore, in other words, in light of verses 1 through 10, in light of the fact that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but, but God, in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. He seated us with him in, in the heavenlies. Therefore, in light of all that is contained there in verses 1 through 10, remember, remember what, Paul? Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Paul's words here in verse 11 reveal the incredible social wall that stood tall and strong between the Jewish people and the rest of the world. As a matter of fact, the, the very word Gentile, in both Hebrew and Greek, it means nations. Nations. And the Jewish people applied it to all other nations except their own. It was a name that represented both distinction. We are Israel. We are the chosen people of God. You, by distinction, are Gentiles. You are the rest of the nations who don't have the promises, who don't have the covenants, who don't who don't enjoy the special favor of God that we enjoy. Jews, and by distinction, the rest of the world, Gentiles, or the rest of the nations. You see, in an act of His grace, God chose the Jewish people, and He set them apart from the rest of the world as the apple of His eye. Why? Because they deserved it? Absolutely not. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, the Lord your God has chosen you, the Jewish people, to be his people for his treasured possession. Speaking of Israel here. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest or the least of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers. God chose Israel to reveal himself in a special way, called them the apple of his eye, that they would be his people and he would be their God in a way that was not true of any other nation. Because they deserved it? Absolutely not. Because it pleased the Lord to do so. 
And as a result, the Jewish people or Israel was distinguished by the mark of circumcision, which was given to God or given by God to Abraham, rather, and it served as a physical symbol of Israel's covenant relationship with Yahweh. So now look back at your Bible in verse 11 here. You see those who are the circumcision, that's referring to Israel. Those who are the uncircumcision, referring to the rest of the nations or the Gentiles. Although the Jewish people or Israel probably weren't the only Semitic group who practiced circumcision, it was distinctive enough that they proudly referred to themselves as the circumcision or the circumcision group. The Gentiles came to be regarded by the Jews as the uncircumcision, which certainly wasn't a term of endearment. It actually implied that they were outside the circle of God's love, outside the circle of God's special divine favor. You see, the uncircumcision of the Gentiles was seen as evidence of their estrangement from God. And in in Israel's mind, in, in the common Jewish man's eyes, that could only be dealt with, that could only be reconciled if a Gentile were to become a a proselyte of the Jewish faith. That whole issue brought major discord into the fellowship of the early New Testament church. If you want to read some more about that, you can pin Acts chapter 15. You can look at that later. Major discord into the early New Testament church, and especially confused some as to how uh, one obtained genuine salvation. As a matter of fact, that's the whole theme of Paul's letter to the Galatians, right? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but here comes some new, some, new, some new information. Here comes a new message that says you need to add to that circumcision. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, some strong language in, in his letter to the church of Galatians. He says, who's bewitched you? Who has stepped in and told you that you need to add something else to your salvation other than trusting Christ alone? Who's fooled you? After having started with faith, are you you now trying to add something else? Unfortunately, the Jews regarded the act of circumcision as a means of conveying grace and securing the favor of God, irrespective of the true spiritual state of the recipient. You see, circumcision was given to Israel, to the Jews, to mark them off as a sign of their covenant relationship with God. But that covenant symbol or that sign of covenant relationship was actually meant to point 2,000 years down the road to a Messiah who would come and would circumcise the hearts of his people. You see, Israel made it something that it was never intended by God to mean and, and set up a barrier between themselves and the rest of the world that was never intended to be there. As a matter of fact, God chose Israel and set them apart, they might be a light to the nations, that they might be a, a, a grand witness and testimony to the character, nature, and attributes of God. But instead, sin wreaked havoc. And they used the very thing that God had given them as a way to mark them off in covenant relationship to create a barrier between themselves and the rest of the world, the Gentiles. You see, the, the Israelites, the Jews... They viewed circumcision, or it came to mean at least, nothing more than a religious box to check off. This poor understanding made Israel proud, self-righteous, malignant, contemptuous. I mean, Paul even took pride in the fact that he was circumcised pre-conversion. Did he not? I mean, you, 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 you look at Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3, and he, 
He says, you know, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin circumcised on the eighth day. He was proud of that. But after his conversion, he realized that circumcision, circumcision was religiously irrelevant. You see, the physical mark of circumcision, aside from serving as the symbol of the covenant relationship between God and Israel, pictured a man's need to have his heart cleansed from the deadly disease of sin. You see, the external cutting was to be a picture or to serve as a picture of cutting that needed to take place internally, namely in our hearts. Circumcision was meant to be an outward symbol of an inward reality, like baptism for us today. I mean, that's, that's Cape Girardeau City tap water. If you step in that baptismal a non-Christian, you step out of that baptismal a wet non-Christian. It's meant to be a, an outward symbol of an inward reality. But it was elevated to a place that it was never meant to be elevated. Matter of fact, Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. But interestingly enough, in in divine irony, uh, later on, God applied that term, uncircumcised, to Israel. Yes, they bore in their body the physical mark of circumcision, but God turned around and he says, yeah, but you're uncircumcised of heart. That which matters most You see, there's oftentimes a distinction between what people are called and what they are in reality. Israel was called the circumcision. So they were called. But there was a clear distinction there of what they were in reality. See, people often identify with the label of Christianity, but the question is, are they Christians in truth? To be a faithful church attender, to have been baptized, to serve on this committee or on that board, it brings nothing or it changes nothing with respect to a person's condition, spiritual condition before God. The real question at the end of the day is, have you been circumcised in heart? Has your heart been carterized by the truth of the gospel message? Paul said in Colossians, which if you read Colossians, uh, a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels exist between Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. As a matter of fact, he wrote those letters, uh, we, we think at least, while in the same time of imprisonment, probably very, in a very close time proximity uh, there. And this is what Paul said in his letter to the church at Colossae. He said, in him, that's in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Notice verse 11 here in Ephesians chapter 2 circumcised with the circumcision of hands. Well, in Colossians, Paul says, you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. You see, the condition of the heart is always the principal spiritual concern. It's not, can you tick this box or can you check this box of religious activity off? The heart is the issue of principal spiritual concern. It is possible, and sadly many are deceived, in being outwardly pious, but yet inwardly are spiritually pitiful. I mean, outwardly look very religious, look very polished, look very together, know the Christian vernacular, maybe even the leader of the Bible study, 
I mean, marks every single Christian box. But yet inside is a pitiful train wreck. Don't overlook the inside of the cup for the outside. Such was the stumbling block for the religious Pharisees. They spent all their time trying to wax eloquent what people could see and neglected the inward man that people can't see and that God principally is concerned with, namely the heart. The question is, are we circumcised of heart? Have we had a changed heart? Ezekiel 36, 26, yes, God was speaking to national ethnic Israel in Ezekiel 36, but the principle is reapplied in the New Testament. God says, I'll remove from you your heart of stone, I'll give you a heart of flesh, I'll put my spirit in you, and I'll cause you to walk in my ways. Is that true of us? Do we know Christ by faith alone? Have we received his grace by faith alone? And in so doing, have we been given a new heart? Because it is what takes place on the inside. It's what you are on the inside that matters most. Paul is telling these young Gentile converts, yes, the, the circumcision, they call you the uncircumcision, but let me remind you, it's circumcision of the heart. That circumcision that has taken place without human hands that matters most. It's what you are on the inside that matters most. Number two, if you're taking notes this morning, here's what I've written in my notes. Remembrance of your past position makes you all the more thankful for your present privilege. Remembrance of your past position, what you once were, makes you all the more thankful for your present privilege, what you are now by grace. Paul says this in verse 12. He says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. One prominent theologian has said this, nothing, nothing is so apt to promote spiritual gratitude and thankfulness as a retrospective glance backwards fixed on the hole of the pit from which we've been dug out. Nothing is so apt to promote spiritual gratitude and thankfulness and humility as a retrospective glance backwards at what I was pre-Christ. What I've been saved from. Looking back at the pit that I've been pulled from. Paul understood this, and so he encouraged the Gentile believers to remember or to consider or to think about what you once were. That word translated remember there. It's, it's in the present tense imperative in the original language. That means it's a command to keep on remembering. Gentiles, keep on remembering. Don't stop remembering what you were in your pre-conversion days. Because doing so, that act of remembering what you were pre-conversion days will develop deep and abiding humility, gratitude, and thankfulness in your heart for the grace that you've been given in Christ. When Paul calls the Ephesian Gentiles to remember, he doesn't mean that the Gentiles had forgotten what they once were. Rather, Paul calls them to intentionally remember so that they might have an even greater understanding and appreciation of the work of Christ that has been wrought in their hearts and lives. Paul knew that this would deepen their humility, elevate their understanding of grace, and incite them to fervent and continued thankfulness. Thankfulness. 
And friends, Paul's encouragement to the Gentile believers is certainly relevant to each of us here this morning. Each one of us who know Christ savingly need to take time to remember what we were before our conversion so that we might fully appreciate what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, David encourages us to this in uh, Psalm 103, probably a familiar psalm to many of you. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Fill in the blank. And forget not one of his benefits. Well, what are those benefits, David? Well, he goes on and he tells us. Who heals all your diseases? Who forgives all your iniquity? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Don't forget those things. You see, we as Christians have a tendency to begin taking spiritual truth for granted. We come into church Sunday after Sunday, and we sit in Bible study after Bible study, and we we hear the same things over and over again, and we can kind of sit here glazed over, and it's like, yeah, I got that already. Tell me something new. Friends, the reason, the reason that so much heresy exists is because people want to hear something new. Instead of the age-old story of Jesus Christ's grace and glory. Tell me that. Give me that. Don't tell me something new. Remind me of what I've been saved from and what I've been saved to and remind me over and over and over again that I might not ever take it for granted. That it might not ever become a familiar, common message to me. Each one of us needs to take time to remember what we were before our conversion so that we might fully appreciate what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Now, back to our text. The Gentiles lacked some spiritual benefits that the Jews, because of their covenant relationship with God, were historically blessed with. And Paul lists five of those spiritual disadvantages, so to speak, or for a lack of better words, five spiritual disadvantages that he wants the Gentile believers to remember were true about their pre-conversion days so that they might be drawn to greater humility and thankfulness. Look at verse 12. Number one, Paul says, at one time or at that time you were separated from Christ. Separated from Christ. Notice that Paul makes Christ the principal issue here. It's not your morality. It's not what have you done. It's not what board are you on. It's not what committee are you on. Jesus Christ is the principal issue here. You see, not only were the Gentiles separated from Christ personally, which was also true of numerous unsaved Jews, but the Gentiles had no national knowledge or hope of the Messiah like Israel did. Matter of fact, the Greek here can actually be translated without the Messiah. Probably says separated from Christ in your Bible there, which is a true and faithful translation, but it could also be translated without the Messiah. You see, Jews, even those who weren't saved, lived with an, expect, with an expectant attitude, hoping and waiting for the coming of their Messiah. Now, granted, having said that, they were looking for the wrong Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to ride in on a white horse and was who, who was going to save them from, from oppression. But even unsaved Jews had a hope and an expectancy of a coming Messiah. But the Gentiles had no expectation of a Messiah to light up their spiritual darkness. They knew nothing of him. If you walked in a room with a bunch of Gentiles 
and you were to mention the name of Jesus Christ they, or, or the Messiah, even in general terms, they would say, who is that? Who, who is this Messiah that you speak of? They had absolutely no context of a coming Messiah. They knew nothing about him. They were separated from Christ. You see, the Christian's greatest joy is the solemn assurance that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. But it was from this great joy that the Gentiles in the Ephesian church had been far removed prior to their conversion. They were separated from Christ without the Messiah. Not even without the Messiah, but without knowledge of the Messiah. All, all of that knowledge, looking forward to a coming Messiah, that was information that was privileged to Israel. Now, Israel, in turn, was to turn around and to be a light to the nations. But they didn't. And so the Gentiles were without the Messiah, separated from Christ. As Jesus Christ is the only redeemer of men and the only mediator between God and men, to be without Christ is to be without redemption. It's to be without access of God, access to God. The Gentiles knew of no atonement for sin. They had no assurance of pardon. They had no well-founded hope of eternal life. They were in a state of darkness and condemnation, a state that nothing but the knowledge of Christ could deliver them from. There's no more fitting description of the state of human nature apart from Christ, than to say that we are separated from the Messiah. Such is the current state of everyone who doesn't know Jesus savingly, separated from Christ, and such was the state of every sinner saved by grace, separated from Christ. Paul wants them to remember that. Remember, we should remember that at one time we were separated from Christ, that it might create in us a welling up of thankfulness and gratitude that we are now connected to him in vital union. We've been raised with him, made alive with him, seated in the heavenlies with him. The second thing that Paul draws our attention to here is that the Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This expression emphasizes the manner in which the Gentiles were separated from Christ. They were alienated from citizenship, or maybe better translated, the way of life. Of Israel. You know, the Jews, they, they, even in small talk, as they were standing around, they, they would have been talking about the coming Messiah. But, but because of the fact that the, the Gentiles were separated from the commonwealth of Israel, they were, they, were, they were a separate nation, they weren't privy to all that information. God called the Jewish people to be a unique nation. He gave them his law, his blessings, his special presence. Israel was God's nation in a way that wasn't true of any other Gentile nation. A Gentile could become a Jew as a proselyte, but he wasn't born into that special covenant nation. As far as the community of Israel was concerned, the Gentiles were on the outside looking in. They were alienated from the way of life of Israel. Thirdly, Paul wants them to remember that at one time they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers to the covenants of promise. That word stranger there has the idea of a foreigner who's allowed in a country but given no rights. The Gentiles had no relationship to the covenants of promise that God had made with his people 
Israel. The Abrahamic covenant of land. The Davidic covenant that there would always be a man sitting on the throne. And from that man would come the Messiah who would ultimately sit on the throne. The new covenant. The blessing of knowing God and having his law written on their hearts. These were all covenants that were made exclusively with the nation of Israel. Now, the blessing of the Gentiles, make no mistake about it, was included in God's covenant with Abraham, but God didn't make any covenants with Gentile nations personally. The Gentiles were aliens and strangers, and the Jews made sure that they were keenly aware of that fact, as a matter of fact. It was oftentimes said that that Pharisees or, or Jewish men would pray this daily, God, I give thanks that I'm not a woman, a Gentile, or a Samaritan. The Gentiles' exclusion from the community of God's people meant that they had no share in the covenants which ultimately promised a messianic savior. Paul says, I want you to remember that at one time you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Fourthly, Paul says, I want you to remember that at one time you had zero hope. Hopelessness naturally follows here because the Christian's hope is always tethered to divine promise. What is spiritual hope? What is spiritual hope? Spiritual hope is a knowledge of God's promises and confidence of their sure fulfillment. When God says that the Gentiles had no hope, he didn't mean that they didn't cherish any hope. I mean, that's scarcely true of any man. But rather in the ancient world, outside of Israel, hopelessness reigned. There was shroud, a shroud of thick hopelessness. The, the, the philosophies and the ideologies of the day, they were hollow and empty. Religions, though they were many, were powerless to help people in the face of both life and death. Because the Gentiles didn't have Israel's privilege of God's revelation, they had no ground for looking forward in hope. They had no reasonable expectation of, of the improvement of their religious condition. They had no knowledge of salvation that would include a future future resurrection and eternal life. I mean, these these would have all been absolutely foreign concepts. Paul says, remember that. Remember what you were so that you might have a greater humility and appreciation and thankfulness for the grace that has come to you. Lastly, Paul says, without God in the world. What a disheartening expression here. The Greek adjective that Paul uses here is atheos. It's the word from which we get our English word atheist. It's not used anywhere else in Scripture, and it literally means godless. Godless in the world, without God in the world. It wasn't that the Gentile nations had no gods. As a matter of fact, quite the contrary is true. It's been said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. Plethora of gods. Remember when Paul was preaching in Areopagus, he found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God in Acts chapter 17. The Gentiles were without God in this world in the sense that they neither believed in nor desired the one true God. They rejected the truth. Romans chapter 1, though it was plain and clear, they rejected the truth in unrighteousness. They neither believed in nor desired the one true God and were therefore without holiness, without righteousness, without peace, and without the joy of salvation. 
They were like mariners without a compass and a guide who were adrift on a rudderless ship on a starless night on a temptuous sea far away from the harbor. I mean, that's a perilous condition. There isn't a more appropriate and striking description of a lost person than to say that he or she is without God in the world. Just think about that phrase for a moment. To be without God is to have no evidence of his favor, no assurance of his love, no hope of dwelling with him one day. This person lives and feels and acts as if there were no God. He or she neither worships him in secret, nor in family, nor in public. He or she acts with no reverence to God's will, puts no confidence in his promises, and fears not when he threatens. What is a man in this world without God? It's a man traveling to eternity Christless. It's a man standing over the grave without God. It's a man fallen, sunk, and ruined with no God to praise, no God to love, no God to confide in, no altar, no sacrifice, no worship, no hope, no father in trial, no counselor in perplexity, no support in death. Such is the state of man by nature. Paul says, remember that. Remember that at one time you were without God in the world. What good is there in remembering where we came from? I mentioned the fact that it should cause in us an attitude of overwhelming gratitude and deep humility as we recall the striking contrast of the before and after pictures that are presented to us in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Let me give you five, though. Let me give you five. These are on your outline. You can write them down if you so wish. But let me give you five practical thoughts here. Five fruits, so to speak, of remembering where we came from and where we are as a result of God's grace. Number one, when we remember where we came from, it tends to deepen humility and increase godly sorrow for sin. When we remember the pit from which we were dug out by divine grace, It tends to deepen our humility. I'm not what I am because of me. I am what I am because of Christ. Because of Christ, I am what I am. It deepens humility, but it also serves to increase godly sorrow for sin. Secondly, when we remember where we came from, it tends to make us all the more grateful for mercy and grace and the greatness of divine love. It tends to make us all the more grateful for mercy and grace and the greatness of divine love. He saved me. Why? Because I deserved it? Absolutely not. Because our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. And it pleased him to do so. Number three. When we remember where we came from, it tends to inspire us with a stronger love for Christ. When we remember where we came from, it tends to infuse in us or inspire in us a stronger love for Christ. Remember the woman in Luke chapter 7 who loved much? Remember why she loved much? Because she realized she was forgiven much. He who is forgiven little loves little. When we remember where we came from, it tends to create in us a stronger love for Christ. Give me more of Christ. You can take everything I have. You can take everything from me, but give me Christ. Number four, 
when we remember where we came from, out of the depths of sin and trespasses, it tends to quicken us to greater zeal and activity for the Lord's service. It tends to quicken us with greater zeal for the Lord's service. It's not, I've got to serve Him. It's, I want to serve Him. It's not, it's not drudgery and duty. It's delight. It's not a got to. It's a get to. When I realize what I've been saved from and what I've been saved to, I want to throw myself with reckless abandonment at the feet of Jesus and say, here am I. How, how can I please you? How can I please you? Not, not that I would earn any favor, any more favor than I've already got. That's impossible. Friends, you, you can't earn any more favor than you got the moment you crossed over from death to life. You got all of his divine favor right then and there. We're not working for anything else. You have it all. And that's why we work. Because we've been given it all. And we do it with great zeal. Fifth and lastly, when we remember where we came from, it tends to make us all the more hopeful for the conversion of others who are right now what we once were. When we remember the pit from which we've been dug, it tends to make us all the more hopeful for the conversion of those who are currently dead in trespasses and sins like we once were. I mean, if God can save me, the chief of sinners, then his arm, his saving arm is not too short to save any man. Now, let me, let me say something briefly here about this act of remembrance. It's important that we note that remembrance of our past condition is not supposed to be a shameful, self-accusing exercise that kills hope and heart, but rather an act of worship and adoration which leads to greater joy and greater devotion to Christ. In other words, I don't remember what I was so that I can beat myself up again. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no more condemnation. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Gone. It is finished. Rather, our remembrance of our past condition is to be an act of worship and adoration which leads to greater joy and deeper devotion to Christ. I love the words of the past Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, he said this. He said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks, 10 dazzling, beholding looks, gazing looks at the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those words help to keep our focus on Jesus while at the same time protecting us from the trap of over-introspection of our own sins. Friends, when was the last time that you thought back about your former state of depravity and lostness apart from Christ? When was the last time you intentionally remembered what you were that you might have a greater humility and greater thankfulness and gratitude for what you now are in Christ? Perhaps even now is a good time to pause and to recall how great a salvation you've been granted. Because nothing inspires gratitude more in a saved sinner than to look back to the pit from which he or she has been extracted by amazing, undeserved grace.
Third, the blood of Christ reconciles man to God, but also man to man. Look at verse 13. Paul writes this. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love the closing words here of verse 13. They absolutely drip with encouragement for us. When Paul says, but now, he's expressing the antithesis of the Gentiles' former spiritual state. It's another one of those but statements that appears in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. But God, Ephesians 2.4. Well, here's but now, Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How or by what agency? By the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. You see, the goodness and grace of God meets men in their helpless state of despair. It matters not how far out of orbit an individual may have robed. They are still capable of reclamation by the spell of Christ's love and grace because the blood of the Lamb has melting power on the most congealed of hearts. You know how I know that? Because I'm standing here this morning. The blood of the Lamb has heating power, saving power over the most congealed of human hearts. Melts it like wax. Paul employs some common biblical imagery here in verse 13. He uses the metaphors of near and far, or near and far off. These are expressions that find their significance back in the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament, Yahweh, in a sense in a sense, dwelled in the temple there in Jerusalem. And so Israel, therefore, was near, near the presence, so to speak, of God. Geographically speaking, all the Gentile nations were considered far away or far off. Not only was this the case literally, but it was also the case spiritually. The Gentile nations lacked a true knowledge of God as a result of their separation from Israel, the very privileged people of God. But God took the initiative to bring the Gentiles near to himself. And in doing so, in reconciling the Gentiles to himself through the gospel, he also is reconciling Gentile to Jew, man to man. The same blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled on Calvary's cross not only reconciles man to God, but also reconciles man to man. Peace with God was achieved through the blood of Christ, but that common peace with God put Jew and Gentile on the same ground and in the same redeemed church. We're going to look at that more next week as we launch out into verse 14. Just look at your Bible for a moment here. Beginning of verse 14, For he, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh by the shedding of his blood, verse 13, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. One new man in the place of two. It should be noted that a person can be nearby and yet far off at the same time. Here's what I mean by that. One can be nearby in merely the external sense by observance of religious activities, doing this and that, checking off this box and that box, but yet be far off internally, not have a circumcised heart. So it's possible to be nearby, doing all the right things, 
but with a heart that's unconverted at the same time. Jesus put his finger on this issue when he said of the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, in a spiritual sense, those who have been brought near, those are genuine believers, representative of genuine believers. By faith, they've been brought close to the heart of God through the blood of Christ. Notice that Paul says you've been brought near. And here's the agency of the bringing near. The agency is by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the agent of change for every lost sinner who comes to Christ by free grace. I love the lyrics of the treasured hymn, It is well with my soul. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Friends, the blood of Jesus Christ is omnipotent to save. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. The blood of Christ is omnipotent to save. See, the gospel brings men into right relationship with God, but the gospel also brings men into right relationship with men. Vertical reconciliation translates into horizontal reconciliation. You see, by the blood of Christ, sin, the the greatest separator of man from God, but the greatest separator of man from man, is dealt with. So far in our study, we've seen that individual sinners obtain the gracious gift of salvation on the basis of God's divine grace by faith. But that's not the end of the story. Because what we'll see beginning in verse 14 next week is that those individuals who are saved by marvelous, matchless grace, they aren't left alone, but instead they're united with other believers in a corporate unity, the church, the body of Christ. Where there was once hostility, where there was once animosity between two people groups, the gospel reconciles both to God, but the gospel reconciles both groups to each other so that they sit next to each other in the same church. And we all bring baggage with us, don't we? Yes is the correct. Yeah, we all bring baggage. And not all baggage is bad baggage, by the way. There's good baggage. But we all bring baggage, and we sit down in here every Sunday morning, and it is the gospel that not only reconciles us to God himself, but that gospel also reconciles the hearts of men to each other. We can put our baggage down. We can sit around the table and we can glory over Jesus Christ and him crucified. We'll look at this next Sunday as we pick back up with verse 14. But let me ask you this. You've been circumcised in heart. You can check off every religious activity and every religious box until you're blue in the face. It's powerless to save. It's not what you've done that matters. It's what's been done for you. And the question is, have you received it by faith?